Hello and welcome to season two of the Therapy Works podcast, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I'll invite you into my therapy room, where I will be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. My mission is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations, which may contain difficult emotions, can be profoundly healing. Hello, Abby Morgan. I am thrilled after many technical difficulties that we are finally (laughs) recording this podcast. And you and I met and you made a huge impact on me, but your work way before I met you had a huge impact on me as a screenwriter of The Iron Lady, of Shame, of The Split. I completely fell in love with you in your book, This Isn't a Pity Memoir and how you navigate the roles of being a mother and a sister and a parent and a child and a working woman and a feminist. And so thinking about what we were going to talk about, my first question is always, what is a particular challenge you are facing or have faced? I'd love to know where you are with that, given all that's happened in the past and assuming that those people listening, a lot of them will know, but for those that don't know, broad outline of what you've been through for the last four years. Well, thank you for that drum roll for a start. That's a gorgeous, gorgeous opening. As you said, I'm a screenwriter, so I'm used to looking at the prism of other people's lives and fictional lives through narrative. But four years ago, very simply, my partner, spoiler alert, now my husband, Jacob, collapsed with a brain seizure And following a very intense period in hospital, 15 months of which seven months of that he was in a coma, he awoke to a very different sense of himself, different sense of of his life. And the book really captures the experience of what happens when your life dramatically changes overnight. And a, a relationship really that had, you know, at the point when Jacob collapsed, we'd been together 18 years and we're raising two teenage children. It's really about how we as a family and how I navigated my way through Jacob's illness, but also the very profound element to Jacob's illness, which is that when he awoke, he developed a very rare delusion called Capgras delusion, which is a belief in imposters or doubles, and it was focused on me. And so it's really about how Jacob no longer really believed I was Abby Morgan, and I guess the writing of the book was a way for me to find myself, but also find us and ourselves and bring us back together again. So that's a sort of potted version, really, of of the book, I guess. I mean, it's potted of of over a four-year period of enormous cascades of not knowing and liminal spaces of fear and seven months him being in a coma as the only way to deal with his encephalitis in his brain. Mm. And then not recognising you and then you having cancer. And I guess what I was aware of was that all of life is about navigating connection and then disconnection, finding something and then losing something, Mm. loving something and then re-navigating how you stay loving. And it's that Mm. sort of movement in and out. And I think you beautifully describe that in the book because I think what often gets excluded when someone is ill is that the ill person gets the focus, but the impact on the entire family system, everybody, Mm. his parents, his siblings, you, your children, often gets missed out. Because I think we focus too much on the individual. And I'd love to explore from you, from your perspective, the challenge of, in some of you being the leader of your family, how you managed with your children and his parents. Well, I think it's very interesting, actually, when you describe that, because I often see life in patterns. I was always terrible at maths, for example, but actually most of my days spent working on structure and systems and order and finding, find order in the chaos and that idea that even chaos has a form. And so a lot of the time I'm working with very loose ideas and themes. And yet when it came to my own life, what surprised me was that kind of narrative drive 
that ability and that prism in which I view my writing life, my write, my work, actually really became the way I managed and navigated my way through the experience that was happening directly to me, was happening to Jacob and was happening to us as a family. It's peculiar now because I wonder if there's an element of disassociation now that I feel we're in a very different place. And I look back on that period. And I mean, I look back at photos of myself and thinking, God, the absurdity and the sort of smile on my face as we're having a kind of Christmas party. And yet Jacob was in the middle of a coma, you know, and sort of the the way that these two things, these sort of liminal peripheries of your life, the way they also, they rub up against each other and you live in this very peculiar way where you carry these two things. And I guess the main thing was that I was always trying to make sense of the world. I always have tried to make sense of the world through words. You know, I talk to think. And one of the things I bumped into someone recently who knew me when I was 12 and I asked her, what do you remember about me? And she said, you were very gauche. You never stopped talking. And I think about that now. I use words. I use my desire my need to communicate as a way to make sense and to connect and the peculiar element of what happened with Jacob and I was that I was unable to talk to the person I spoke to most I was constantly having a dialogue with this other Jacob in my head throughout the experience you know Mm -hmm. what was peculiar for me is that in many ways Jacob and I had a very 1950s role reversal marriage you know I live with an actor if anybody's lived with an actor it's feast and famine Jacob had long periods when he was at home and it became a really important part of our life and our structure to our life that Jacob you know was around and was there to really raise the children when I was often abroad on film sets or shooting or promoting and so Jacob had really been the backbone of our family and so the thing that was so peculiar for me was to actually step into that role and in a way whilst I feel very strong in my working life when I'm at home there's a real reverse Jacob drives the car Jacob leads our lives Jacob is, I call him the minister of fun so I very much felt like I had a very fine tutor I really started to mirror a lot of what Jacob had done for us in our family life and I found myself often internally going, does this work? Is this working for you? Is this the way you did these things? Because I think when someone drops out of your life, be it through illness, divorce, sudden accident, loss, dementia, it's the void. And what you don't realize is the muscle memory, the shape of that person, the the way you have toperied your whole life around someone, that gap is still there, that shape is still there. So you fill it. The presence of absence. And I mean, there were so many bulbs that went off and one of the things I was thinking about is I was talking to someone whose husband died and she was saying to her children well what would dad do you know over Christmas about this problem or that problem and of course the relationship with them continues and they inform you from memory but also the work and in, in fact what you're kind of talking about the psychological work is adjusting to the fact that they're not there so you have to integrate who you are and how you do it, informed by them, but also in some way make it your own. And in the doing of that is messy and chaotic and you lose stuff. And in some way you lose yourself to find yourself. Absolutely. And I think one of the things that really chimed when we first met was that you talked about post-traumatic growth. Yeah. And I think that's one of the extraordinary things I've been thinking a lot about because whilst you're in the trauma, you're very adrenalized, you're very giddy. You're very obsessional. You know, well, I you're hyper, like, aren't you? You're hyper, yeah. you're hyper vigilant, you're hyper alert. Every element of your body is saying, I want to fight this, I want to survive. I didn't realize the life force. And that life force stretches into everything. It's the life force that says, eat well today. It's the life mm. force who says, communicate, touch, talk, feel, party, joy. I became a real joy chaser because it was so bleak, it was so dark, it was so painful and frightening. And I think that's the thing that no one really explains to you is just that the frightening nature of any kind of trauma and the relentless nature. And so all of those words like out of body, surreal, waking to a nightmare, it is a waking nightmare for a period of time. And then you have to adjust, but it is not without its gifts. You know, that's not meant to sound like a platitude. I'm sure you have seen every kind of story. I mean, your wonderful book, Every Family Has a Story has been a huge comfort for me recently. I've been reading it a lot because I think you started this by saying what's one of the biggest challenges that you're facing now. And one of the things that I'm really confronted with is I feel like the last four years I've been trying to hold our family together. And suddenly my daughter on Monday is going away traveling and it will be Jake and I again. And this thing, this family that I tried to put back together again, it's like I ran out of the piece of string. 
And I'm suddenly confronted with that feeling of, oh my goodness, okay, this is another shape that I have to reconfigure to. And it's one of the biggest challenges I'm facing, which is I feel like I have been trying to control, put things back together. And of course, the shape has changed as I have tried to control it. And in many ways, the experience has changed in so many ways that the shape was always going to change. What's interesting, I could hear beneath your words your sadness and it's almost like your words try to chase your sadness away because you're trying to make sense of the sadness that i could really feel in your body and that deep sadness of a new loss will bring back previous losses and you'd never get back to being the same person this idea that i'll get back to the old me or the old us that the kind of work of it is constantly allowing ourselves to feel the pain of it. And what I'm really curious with you is in the puzzles of these incredibly important films and TV series and plays and books that you've written, it feels like you're puzzling fundamental life issues. And I was thinking, was the source of that, that you were trying to give yourself what you most wanted when you were young? Now, I think what's interesting is when you look at a body of work, and I don't tend to reflect on my body of work. I mean, I often get asked saying, could I see a copy of the script of? And I, I don't even know where it is. You know, I have no idea. You know, screenplays don't often get published, actually. So I feel like a lot of my work is scattered. But what I realise is... A like, bit like yourself at times. I like, oh my gosh, I'm the most scattered, well, you know, ADHD, you know, but actually very scattered as a person. But I feel like what the work often does is that it's like it calms my racehorse and it helps focus my racehorse. And in being able to reflect on a body of work, which after 25 years of writing, I can start to see repetition of themes. I can see that I'm constantly trying to often deal with loss. You know, most of my work is about loss and reconfiguration of a new order. I think that's quite universal. I think those are, you know, those are profound things that you can experience in any form. But I certainly think that there is that going on. But the other thing I think is going on is that I grew up from a very, very young age watching plays. My yeah. father ran a theatre. My mother was an actress. The dinner table was about who could tell the funniest story, who had the most interesting punchline. And so I think it was a very rich world and there was a very natural structure to things. And I started to notice those patterns again. I started to realise that plays have shapes. There are points of catalyst, you know? And so I think those sort of shapes were quite comforting to me when I was in the middle of this chaos. Psychotherapeutically, what we know is that unconsciously, we often mirror the patterns that we've witnessed because they epigenetically, but also from behaviours. And in some ways, when you're talking about navigating loss, what it brings to mind for me was that your father was often away working and then they divorced when you were an adolescent your parents. And so there was this belonging and then this exile and the work of yours as a screenwriter and a director and a producer, I think now, is that you oscillate between belonging in the safety of home of Jacob Mm. and your two children. Mm. And then you're exiled to a set where you literally Mm. don't speak to anyone, can't see anybody Mm. and you're thrown back. And there's some kind of mirroring of your father's life, but that is also the mirroring of what losses, where you kind of go down and leave and then you go up and rebuild and you go down and leave. It is that oscillation. I mean, gosh, that blows my mind, actually, when you said that. But I also think what you're also talking about is a shift in perspective the whole time. You know, I I, I definitely um, recognise that thing of being absolutely in the heart, the centre, the epicentre of everything. As the writer, you are at the beginning and the epicenter, but actually it's a process of adoption. It's a total collaboration, film and television, particularly for me, because, you know, one of the, the kicks... Is I that get, like family? Yeah. I think theatre has a very different vibe to a, a set, a TV set, because theatre, you know, a group of people come together and they repeat the experience every night. Every night. In a, on a film set, you are on set all day for that absolutely essential as an actor 20 minutes as a screenwriter you are normally as I always jokingly say this but it's true you're normally talking to the catering staff as my role has progressed and now I exec and I direct a little bit I tend to be up by the monitor and I like to observe it but I think the point is that sometimes I feel absolutely at the center but it's an essential journey of loss as I have to then pass it on 
and it becomes adopted by everybody, by the ensemble. And there is both pleasure and pain in that. And you have to keep your ego in check. And one of the things I'm constantly monitoring is my ego about how play nicely, share nicely. This isn't yours. What I've come to realize, and it's largely because I've worked with brilliant people, but I think it's also I witnessed my parents as artists and I saw the way they collaborated. You know, when we were children, we were all in our father's place. We were on stage. We were in rehearsal rooms. So I witnessed the power. So I have this sort of strange relationship with the artist, which is I'm hugely respectful of it. And I see the fun of it. But there's also pain with that because my ego can no longer be held absolutely in the heart of it. One of the greatest kicks I get is when I see the roll of the credits at the end of a show. And it's not because I think they are all there because of me. I think 200 people got employed. Yeah. And for me, when you're brought up with feast and famine, the greatest moment in our house was when either of my parents got a job. It never got better than that moment. It was always like, yay, you got the, you know. And so there's a feeling that 200 people are getting that job. And I, I do get a real kick out of that. What you're saying is that there's a parallel of your internal world of connection and disconnection that is human, but also you experienced from what you witnessed with your parents. but And also that includes abundance or deprivation. But there is something about the jobs that you do when you write the words, you tell the story exactly as you like and you have control, but then you have to let it go and let it be played and see how it's played out. And then you have to let it go altogether and let it go out into the world. There's so many multiple losses that it feels like you're constantly trying to teach yourself how to manage loss. But also there's so many contradictions because I create artifice to find truth. Yes. And so one of the things that's very exciting for me is when I watch something eventually, you know, by the time something goes out, I've watched it so many times on an edit, I have watched it. it. Yeah. But there's sometimes a moment, and it's often when I'm in a hotel room and I'll turn something on and one of my shows will be on, and I'll think, oh, who's done that? And there may be a moment I catch where I, it's completely separate from me and that's the joy that's when I hear what I'm trying to do that's when I feel it which is I'm just trying to get to something truthful but it's it's artificial in its process and one of the things for me that was interesting is growing up with actors and directors there's a lot of artifice and there's a lot of fun but everyone is very serious about the act of fun and everybody is searching to try and be truthful and and I think within the great plays we know why they survive and that's from Chekhov to Shakespeare to modern day. We see ourselves in them. We see ourselves in something truthful. What was interesting about writing a memoir was the purity of it. It, it was like a conversation for me. And, and and I talk about it in the book, but I genuinely feel like it's a little bit like those times in my past where I used to get drunk and I'd wait the next morning going, what the hell did I say? But it was wonderful to write something and go, I don't care what I said, I had to say it. It was the first time I stood in something and I didn't put an actor there. I didn't put a director there. And in fact, I really oscillated about whether I would read it, the audio book. I worried I'd ham it up too much. And I worried I'd put perform too much, it. I'd perform it and I'd also bring too much of my emotion into it and I wouldn't let it sort of exist away from me. So actually it was the right way to go to get someone else to do it, I think. Well, it is the, it is the paradox, isn't it, that, as you say, where there is artifice, it's where you're looking for truth is when it works. And actually as human beings, we need other people's stories to understand ourselves. And that's how we kind of recognize ourselves. Because if we're just talking to ourselves or even just talking to another person, there is something that happens, but it's in the narrative of seeing or listening or hearing or telling a story that we understand ourselves in the context of the other people and our world. And it feels like that's what you're grappling to do all of the time. All the time. Uh, Most of the time, I'm just trying to communicate. I mean, it's a desperate desire. It's still the 12-year-old girl who wouldn't shut up. In therapy, one of the things is the more front you have, the more you're hiding behind. Is that wanting to communicate? Is that because you didn't feel heard? I felt too much. Calm down. You know, I felt giddy. So I think there's, yes, I think maybe believe the restraint, the leaning into the structure, the curating of a narrative so that you can deliver it in a perfect six hour form, you know, 235, whatever it is, the memoir. You know, one of the things I do feel about the memoir that still shocks me is writers talk about it poured out of me. 
writing doesn't pour out of me. It's it, hard work. It's hard and you scratch your head and you do as I, you know, eat a lot of chocolate, do a lot of internet shopping, <laughs> you know, Google other people, other writers and go, oh my God, they're brilliant. Why am I so rubbish? <laughs> So I do all of that rubbish, but the, the, the thing that's interesting is that this book really did pour out of me. That memoir did pour out of me. And I still am surprised by that. And I am unnerved a little bit by it because I want to restrain it. I want to control it. But the main thing is, and this is where I wonder about the disassociation, I am surprised that I was able to so fully inhabit and expose and reveal something which even now I'm still processing feeling. I found a way to control and deliver and sort of express and communicate. But I'm reflecting on it now in a very different way and going, God, what an extraordinary thing. Our brain has multiple processes. Mm. So in some ways, the pouring is like finding the narrative, the beginning, the middle and and the end as you had it Mm. in the book. But the way we adapt and come to terms with things takes much, much longer much longer than the words on the page or than Jacob coming out of hospital or Mm. so that the process of accommodating, coming to terms Mm. with all that you've been through, Mm. in some ways you need a real time of safety Mm. because you were just surviving and Mm. have been probably still and bringing Mm. home the bacon. In some ways you have to get to a safe place where you don't feel anybody's under threat to really process it and then you can revisit it from a different perspective i think what no one tells you you know i went through cancer in the middle of this i think one of the things that the revelation about cancer is grueling and all of the things that you would expect i was very fortunate but it was definitely grueling i've come through the other side one of the hardest things is to live with the fear of it coming back to live with the fear that i can lean into something and trust in something. And how do you marry these two things, which is we can never 100% trust in anything. But at the same time, we can't dwell in every minute expecting the shadow of death to be there. And on a kind of wider scale, I think one of the reasons why I'm circling about my daughter going away is can I trust she can go out into the world? Can I trust that she can sit line? She's going to scuba dive. She can do all of those things, high risk sports. And there is part of me that has to go very deep into myself and I can't even bear to say this out loud, but but go even in the midst of all of that, you will survive it. You have to be prepared for this. And I talk about in the book, Jacob's unbearable lightness of being. And the peculiar thing is that whilst Jacob has been profoundly changed and profoundly touched by what he has gone through, he also doesn't remember a lot of it. There is the period of the coma and the period when he was in hospital and then a large part of his rehabilitation, it's really been only the last year that he truly remembers things. We have all been through something. I witness in Jake that unbearable lightness of being again. He always had it, and there it is again. And sometimes I think, God, it's extraordinary. Do I dare trust it? Do I dare trust it again, and can I do that? And the other part of me, this sounds way too existential, but one of the things, it relates to stories. It relates to the fact that actually... I don't keep track of my scripts, my shows. They come up, as I said, pop up on a hotel room. And that's okay because I can't measure my life in something. It's insignificant in the moment that someone watches it. So I have this very peculiar thing. I think all writers spend two years on a show and you'll see a tweet or an Instagram and they'll go, loved it, hated it, watched it in watched it overnight, watched the whole thing. You know, people consume this. And what I realise is, is you're just part of something that's being consumed. It doesn't really matter. What matters is it might have touched somebody in that moment. And on a kind of wider level, I wrote this story about Jake and I, and it was hugely significant. And it's it's been hugely important that I did this for me. And I think in many ways for my family, but it's just one story. And what I realise is, is the thing I take away from all of this is the way I find an unbearable lightness of being is to recognize that I am both significant and completely insignificant. And I talk about the gods looking down on me and screwing up my world. But at the same time, I also say, why not me? Why not? And I realize that it's about this weird element of control. And at the same time, there's all of these things I cannot control in the world. And a lot of what I do as a writer of narrative, as a script writer, is I control the narrative, but I always have options about which way it can go. And more and more, I err towards something that isn't entirely controlled, isn't completely answered, has something that's open-ended, because it sort of marries with the way I'm feeling much more. In some ways, what you're saying, and this is one of my questions on the podcast, is what have you learned? And what you've learned 
is in some ways the paradoxical theory of change in that when we can accept the things that we find completely unacceptable, unbearable, that is when we can come to terms with them. Mm. And that fundamentally, we have to find a way of daring to have hope, even when we've suffered the most terrible pain, hope to dare to love again, because without love, there's nothing. It's a devastating truth we have to face. But also what you circle there, without love, we are nothing. What's so fascinating is love to me, I talk, it's a hum, it's a feeling. I can't describe it. It's risky it. though. It's and risky. painful. It's and risky messy. and it's messy and it's painful and it's humiliating and it's joyous and, and it's annoying. embarrassing and annoying. And I still don't know entirely what it is. <laughs> the only thing that I think where the growth for me came from with Jacob is that I feel this huge passion and love for him still. And I find that peculiar. That's amazing. (laughs) I can't describe it. I can't even, it's just this feeling. Love is just being connected and interested and communication for me, I guess. Love is just communication for me because I think love can come in so many different ways. You know, I think you and I connected because there was a kind of instant, oh, I love this person. And it's the joy of, I can feel, you know, a joy when a barista is nice to me and is funny and quirky. I can feel joy when one of my children's friends says something funny. It's, It's about connection for me. It's about, it's a very live thing for me, love. It's a very live thing. And yet what was the great relief was that when everything felt like it was demolished, when everything felt like it was lost, all my geraniums have just died with this frost. And I keep looking and I'm going, do I dig them up or shall I just experiment and see if they'll come back? That's how I feel about what happened with Jacob and I was that there was a period where it looked so black, so dead, so gone. And the profound joy for me is that the shoots have started to grow again and it's back. And that has been a shock to me. That has been an amazingly powerful affirmation of something. And that's because we got lucky. Jake did come back. Jake did get better. I did get through my cancer. But it is a journey, this life we're on. And any of those things could happen to any of us again, you know? So And and maybe the profound thing for for people listening who are in relationships, and I and I, I agree that you have got to a better place, but you could have cut it before you got to a better place. Is this idea of relationships I mean, this is too simplistic, but the seasons, you know, a bit like your your mm. bulbs that endure the frost and the hardship and the winter and keeping enough self-enrichment, looking after yourself, Mm. getting support from other people to keep you alive, to keep the relationship alive, to then have the capacity for the spring and hopefully a summer so that you can dare to come back together. And what I like about you, I writing again without these sort of happy endings, all the stories we see, it ends when the work starts. Yes. <laughs> Rather than the work is about staying in it and surviving mm. what mm. feels unbearable and unendurable. I'm not saying all marriages or partnerships are worth saving, but I think yours is a story where you've really allowed yourself to feel the worst and the mess and like you become a horrible version of yourself. Awful. And he was actually a horrible version of himself. Mm. Mm. And yet, and yet. Yeah. And I think, you know, the Buddhist phrase, love the flower in winter when it says nothing was the one that went round and round in my head. Oh, that's interesting. Um, But I guess the other thing that you're talking about is that there are those seasonal changes, but one of the things I'm thinking a lot about is that there's a huge industry around chaos, drama, tragedy. What's interesting is that that passes and now you're on the new driver. And I see parallels with having raised two children, having gone through that. What are the drivers post 50? You know, those drivers are very set for us in a sort of, in the most kind of archetypal way, which is get an education, fall in love, you know, get married, have children or not, you know, grow, build, develop. But there is something when you hit 50 for me, and I'm now 54, which is, okay, these are new drivers. What are the things that push me forward? But I see also parallels with having gone through this maelstrom over the last four years. So you do this thing in your life, and there's also an urgency and a kind of drive to then not move on from it, but recognize that you have to find new drivers and you have to believe and hope for new things. 
you can't just rotate around that experience. No, I think that I, I completely agree. In it. And we're recording now in the early January when there's sort of a new chapter, a new year. And what I think I would like me to understand better and all of us to understand is that we don't turn a page and have a new chapter or a new year and leave behind the past. But when we allow ourselves to adapt and change through the pain of change, we take some of the growth from what has been difficult and can invest it and fertilize our new ideas. So that you can take the learnings from the great successes you've had, but also the great difficulties you've mm. faced and use them. And that's a great sort of tragedy of like women not being listened to in their mid-50s is because it's when we're at our best. Well, the more invisible we become physically, the more visible I think we become. Our brain is. And to ourselves. And to ourselves. But I, I think the other thing that's interesting is every night I take my clothes off and I have a less breast missing. And I have a massive, rather bizarre scar, actually. Thank you. Thank you, male surgeon. Um, and I look at it, and what I've come to realise is it's my job to start to understand, accept it, come to terms with it. But it is always a reminder of something I've gone through. And I think you have to be careful not to over-attach too much to it. But equally, I do look at it, and I have a curious relationship with it. And I think it marries with where I am now, which is I'm looking at the scars and checking if they're healing and going, this is a strange new world, lopsided world I'm now living in. And how do I find my equilibrium in it. And I suppose your thing about, I can never go into a new year feeling completely symmetrical. It's always a balance to find an internal symmetrical, but because I'm physically not symmetrical, it's always a journey. I think those things of new beginnings, new starts, the earth, all of that is still filled with all the complexities of those nutrients and the complexities of the experience you've gone through. And you take some of that through, but I do feel like there's something very interesting because I do look at myself every day and go, it's still a shock. It's like, how did that happen? Where did that come from? So for people listening who may have their own version of what you've talked about, what have you learned that you think may be of use to them? And I think you've said it actually quite a lot, is that there's a sort of shock is always there and yet you survive. Is there one particular thing that you wish you'd known when this happened with Jacob or with your cancer? I mean, everything can sound incredibly sappy. But I guess what I realize more and more is that people err on good yeah. and people err on love and people err on leaning into vulnerability and support rather than going away. And I've never felt such support and such love. And I'm no great shakes. As many friends who love me as hate me, I don't bathe in a glow of loveliness. I'm a tricky, difficult, complex person. But the love, the support I have felt from friends, strangers, my children, my family, Jake's family. It's just people are on the side of good. But also what you're saying is it was in the end the love of others that enabled you to survive when you couldn't really feel very much yourself. Yeah, and I guess the love between Jacob and I survived yeah. because the way Jacob recognised me was he felt the flat of the back of my head and went, your head feels like Abby Morgan. And that oh, was really, that for me, there was this tiny bit of muscle memory. I'd made an imprint on him him. I knew he'd made an imprint on me, but for a while I'd lost my imprint on him. And, and that was very affirming, I have to say. So we need to end on that very poignant, very beautiful memory. That, as you straight the back of your head, that's Abby Morgan. Abby Morgan, thank you very, very much for being a guest on this podcast. Thank you so much for having me. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialize in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hello, Sophie and Emily. I am really looking forward to hearing your 
view about Abby Morgan and how she dealt with the devastation of Jacob's illness and then her own cancer and kept the lights on by working so hard and the numbers of things she was juggling and feeling. And also we want to extend this, I think, to beyond her as well. I think that's the most useful is not, not all relating to Abby herself, but for people living with family members with chronic illness. Yeah, I mean, for me, the first thing is, gosh, I mean, what an extraordinary amount to experience in such a short time period. And that sort of crazy thing of your life is sailing along and suddenly something happens and your life is completely, you know, inverted, essentially. But it also really made me think about the power of narrative to make sense of things. So for her, obviously, that was quite literal, like in her books, in her screenplays, in her scripts. That's the way that she can make sense of things. But I think for all of us, there is such power in creating a narrative of our lives. And I think it's particularly important when we've experienced something upsetting or something, you know, like an adverse event. And all research shows that the more ways we have of making sense of our experience, so understanding it cognitively, being able to understand our emotional experience and being able to reflect on it, the more we can do all of those things, the better our mental health and our well-being. And it doesn't mean that you have to think that there's like a big overarching reason for all this crap stuff to have happened, you know? Like no. it doesn't mean that there has to be a like deep meaning. It just means that you can kind of understand and make sense of what this has meant for you personally. And I think for listeners who are maybe sort of struggling to really like start to do that, one thing that I sometimes do with clients is have them do a timeline. So just kind of starting from the beginning to where they are now and connecting the dots is a really, really simple way to just start to build a narrative of your own life. I think that's very helpful, Em. And I think it's one of those things when something very fundamental changes and shifts, particularly if it happens suddenly, then it sort of reveals what is usually invisible, which is certain assumptions or a certain narrative we've been living in that holds our experience, that holds us in balance. And Abby talked about sort of finding her equilibrium again. And it's like when those sort of tacit assumptions about how life goes, like, you know, bad things don't happen to good people or life is predictable if you just do what you're told to do or I have a certain expectation about how my life is going to go. We don't think these things, but we're in a story, like Emily said, that when something happens that ruptures that, suddenly all of that becomes visible and broken and disrupted. And the process of finding a new narrative that can accommodate whatever's happened to us or what has changed is a big part of being able to find your balance again and not have, I think, what people can often describe, can often happen after a loss, bereavement, is that things feel surreal, that feels things don't make sense. Is this really them? Is this their really life? Has this really happened? And I think all of that are kind of signals of that kind of disruption that happens that can be very shocking. And I think in the in the shock of it, there's so much underneath, and I'm thinking about carers for people who've had heart attacks or have chronic illnesses or big injuries. And I think a lot of what goes on beneath is almost unspeakable. I mean, I think Abby spoke very clearly about some of her feelings, but I think generally when I work with other people, there's this feeling like you shouldn't be furious with the sick person for being ill that there's a sense of shame for the sick person who is ill, that they're no longer themselves, they're not their identity, they're not doing what they normally do, they're not, say, bringing home the bacon or being the caring parent. They kind of lose themselves in their illness. And the narrative, I think, culturally is, gosh, you're so amazing, you're so strong, how do you keep it going? And then poor you to the sick person. And I think in reality... I've often seen it, I'm seeing it now with someone, is a sort of rage, like, does, I, wa I want them to die, but of course you don't want them to die, but you want it over, you want mm. it finished, because it feels so relentless and so exhausting and it's so hard to manage. You just want these feelings gone and you want mm. this situation to be better. And I think we get very confused about that and I think it because it feels so heavy whether it's caring for somebody with a really like a chronic illness or actually caring with somebody with real 
mental health difficulties, whatever it is, I think it, it feels such a burden, as well as having moments of joy and all these other emotions in between. Funny, yeah. So I think the other part of it is sometimes I see parents who maybe have children or teens who require like a lot of care. They have a, multiple levels of complex needs. And when I ask them, like, what do you do to support yourself or take care of yourself? And almost <laughs> universally, it's like, I, I don't really have time to do that. I'm really just focused on putting out fires, on focusing on whatever so-and-so needs. And that's where I am right now. And really just reminds me of the oxygen mask analogy of you can't continue to give like that. You will not be able to. So the best way to support somebody else is to also find ways of supporting yourself. Mm. I did a placement in a perinatal psychiatry unit and the wonderful psychiatrist there who mum put me in touch with used to say to pregnant and newborn mums, she said, I'm writing your prescription. And she'd write it in a new prescription. She wrote, time for yourself. <laughs> she was like, this is a prescription. You have to take it just like you take a pill. It's no different. And it's from your psychiatrist. And it can be short. It can be 10 minutes. It can be 10 yeah. minutes. But I loved how we somehow have these different categories. Like when the doctor says you must take this medicine, you're like, oh, yes, we must take that medicine. Uh, but when someone says, oh, take care of yourself emotionally, it's like, well, is that really legitimate? Do I really need it? And do I have time for it? Do I, I don't no, have time. I don't have time, which, although there's a reality to it, it's also a question of prioritization, as harsh as that might sound. But also, I think there's a rage that I've seen with clients when other people say to them, you must take care of yourself. There's a kind of fury that spits back. Well, maybe you've got time to take care of yourself, mm -hmm. but, you know, they're in totally. a kind of very heightened mm -hmm. state and they don't have any circuit breakers. It's like, try living my life and have a bit of self-care. You know, there's a, mm -hmm. but also there's a, mm -hmm. an idea of F you, but also I think there's a fear that if I really let myself, even for a moment, put down this wall of protection, maybe I'll feel stuff that I don't want to feel. You know, maybe I'll feel sad or maybe I'll fall over and I won't get up again. So I think sometimes self-care is seen as, as a threat to your armoured self, rather as Emily often or both of you talk about, is that you can move between the two. Or maybe I'll be furious and I won't want to care for you anymore. Mm. Yes. I won't be able to pick myself back up again. The only thing I can do is get through this tunnel. It's easy to say and hard to do. One part of what you discussed I really enjoyed when you had this sort of, there was a lot of analogy and metaphor going on in the conversation, which is probably not surprising given her profession, talked about sort of bringing old growth into new spaces, that sort of post-traumatic growth, but with quite a lovely sort of analogy with it. I suppose in a way, a bit touching what Emily was saying earlier about narrative, but I think so often I've heard versions of the terrible thing that has happened to me, I wish hadn't happened to me. I wish I hadn't done it or made that choice. And the thing that I have then learned and grown from it is the thing that can make that experience more bearable. Not that you would choose to have it, but that bringing of the learning into the new experiences. I'm thinking particularly in terms of sort of, for example, with regret, being like, okay, having learned what made me do that at wish, that time. but... Yeah. Or become conscious of why I wasn't in that moment able to make a different choice to the choice that I made because I wasn't aware that I had really low self-esteem, that I didn't recognize that as abuse or that I didn't realize I was being so mean, whatever it was, angry. But then that is a knowledge and awareness that can allow you to think about, okay, well, now how can I live my life differently given that I am now aware and conscious and have these experiences I can do now differently as a result of what I've learned from then, which can make those feelings of regret or loss more bearable. I don't know if that's the right word. What do you think? I think that's right. I, I think that maybe there's also sort of two slightly separate things. So I think with the regret, a lot of the learning comes from trying to reduce shame so yeah. if you've done something that you've regret and anger against yourself as well and shame is such a restricting emotion that it doesn't really allow you to learn so the more that if there's something that you regret and channel your self-compassion mm -hmm. i was doing the best that i could at that time mm -hmm. or whatever your 
thinking is, the more you're going to be able to grow from it. Whereas I think the feelings around post-traumatic growth from a kind of place of loss are maybe something more about sort of more existential life type mm. growth things. Or like to me, those seem like maybe slightly differently nuanced ways of growing. And the other thing, given that we talk about narrative and wanting to take it out generally, is about love. You know, the most of the stories that we see on the screens are happy ever after and that people fade. And I was thinking, I've often thought this and worked with this with clients, is that when your partner is actually sick, when you said you'd marry them, um, uh, the vows of in sickness and in health, really, you only really meant health. <laughs> and that being sick wasn't really the deal, mm. particularly for long, long illnesses, you know, where someone is radically changed and that the whole balance of the relationship is changed and who you are is changed. And I was thinking how love is, is a verb and it is in communication and it is what matters most. And it is so unbelievably hard that we can really be furious with the person that's ill and the person who is ill can be furious with their carer. And yet the thing that enables them to survive it is finding ways of loving each other with small acts of kindness or little moments of jokes or, you know, loving giving each other a break, loving coming together, you know, but love is how you survive these in impossible situations, really. And I think that was what was so extraordinarily clear from her conversation with you was mm. how much she loved her husband. And she was now, surprised. Then, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I didn't expect this. She said, love is messy and annoying. That's not yeah. in the movies. <laughs> oh, yes, it was very, it was really moving at the end. I thought when the story she told about, you know, your head feels like Abby Morgan. You know, the, and she used yeah. the word being imprint, and this moment, a very moving moment of the idea that her, the, how they had imprinted each other on each other was deeper than the level of confusion and, and impact of his condition. Yes, and it also made me think, having talked a lot about narratives, it made me think of the power of the nonverbal senses, you know? That, yes. That what <laughs> made him recognise her was the feel of the back of her head that felt so sort of primal. There was something incredibly primal about that. Holding a baby's and head, I, and yeah. I, and, I, and I just sort of also thought, you know, that's such a useful reminder because as well as pathways to memory that come from kind of a narrative sense, there are all sorts of different ways that you can self-soothe using all sorts of different senses. So, like, for me, it made me think of, you know, when you have a child who won't sleep in their own bed, that often what can help is giving them something that smells like you. That like a scarf or a something that a sort of object that they can hold on to that also has a has a smell. For me, it reminds me that my own relationships, both with my husband and my children, sometimes there are languages of love that I can access when I can't access others. Like I might be able to say something even if I can't quite do the touch, but sometimes I can do the touch when I can't do the words. Like I might be able to give the hug, or I might be able to squeeze the hand when I can't always say the right thing, and that those are different levels of being able to connect or there's being alongside right and not talking and not touching but doing something together there are other ways of bridging back to each other if for a time being the bridge is fragile and on, on, on other if you're not being able to talk at that time because words feel too hard and I think love sometimes is this gift that just rises up and you don't have to work for it <laughs> but Abby it's like oh I still love him I didn't really expect to um but I also often think about it as an intention like you can't choose to love someone when you don't love them but it is an orientation in my mind and an intention towards someone to be loving to love them rather than only thinking of it it's like is it there do I feel it or do I not feel it you know which I think is often how it's portrayed isn't it in films and books it's like oh you fell in love and that was it lucky you mm. job done mm. and I was talking to John and Julie Gottman who are the kind of Gottman Institute he's done the more research on love and relationship than anybody in the last 50 years and what they talk about is small acts of kindness it's not the big gesture of the sort of trip to Paris or the amazing cartwheeling sex although of course that can help 
Oh, those but are nice. Much, those are nice. <laughs> but that, you know, they're not like, <laughs> that was so good feeling. But, but <laughs> I agree. I'll take either of but, those. <laughs> yeah, but they don't come along so often. So given that they are rare, they talk about small acts of kindness and that, so you're saying that sort of intentional. And it was my, uh, your dad and uh, Michael's anniversary this week, 43 years. And what we talked about was that at the moment, our acts of kindness are, I help him find his glasses because he can't find them. <laughs> so well, when he actually, that's them, a really annoying chore. <laughs> <laughs> he gets so cross. He gets so cross. <laughs> but I help him and I don't get cross. And, and then we find them. And so that feels supportive. And he puts my electric blanket on when I go to clean my teeth. Aww. And I know those are tiny <laughs> things. And that, so sexy. <laughs> <laughs> I know, luckily, he never listens to these podcasts. I never would have said it. The, given that, the you know, I, don't, I can't really say much more without saying too much, but <laughs> I think small things can go a long way is what I'm saying. Small things do. <laughs> And and the opposite is true. Is small cuts every day are as damaging as big, oh, yes. terrible acts of betrayal. Little cruelties, oh, little unkindnesses, I think are as damaging. So it's true. I think you can think you're not doing much by not looking someone in the eye or not responding or but actually as a daily endurance, it's as harmful. Shit. Yes, it does harm. On that note, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry, we were basking in the joys of love and <laughs> kindness. And just <laughs> no, but I think where you have one, I mean, I think one of the messages on the podcast is that life is complicated and messy, right? Where you have one thing, you also always have the other. There's the underbelly. So small injuries, as well as small kindnesses, you know, have their natural outcome. And I like the word cuts, that little cuts. Thank you, everyone who is listening. We really hope you enjoy our conversations and are learning about yourselves and how to support yourselves and in your lives and those around you. If you know someone who might enjoy this podcast, do please share it with them. And to help others find it, do please rate and review. Until next time. Thank you. <laughs>